Now, Father, it's our joy to open our Bibles and to study the Word. And, Father, we need your grace. We need, we need humility to receive it. We need discipline to apply it. We need tenderness of heart and openness of ear to take heed and to listen. Father, thank you for what happens when we gather like this, the encouragement of singing together, uh, the reality and the uh, helpfulness of bearing one another's burdens in shared prayer and requests. And then, Lord, for the motivating power of your word to challenge and to convict and to change us. And so, Lord, may your spirit do its work among us. And may your word have a power uh, today uh, that we would be careful to not have any kind of hardness of heart or thickness of neck and resist the word in any way. We commit ourselves to you now in this part of the service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was almost a hundred years ago now that that classic moment, really a story of men's arrogance took place. The year was 1912. It was April 12th, right before midnight. And you know the story pretty well. The great mighty ship, the Titanic, was sailing in the North Atlantic and um, sailing a fairly full throttle at 22 and a half knots. It's a very maiden voyage. No ship was ever like this before. It was a ship of beauty. It was a work of a masterful craftsmanship. It was opulent. It was something that the wealthy and the popular wanted to identify with. And on its maiden voyage, 22 and a half knots, so that they could get into New York Harbor ahead of schedule, they refused to heed the warnings of the floating ice. And you know the story, don't you? Ripping alongside a floating iceberg, they tore open the side of the boat, and in just two and a half hours, this huge, hence its name, Titan, Titanic, boat took on water. And can you imagine being on that slanting deck and the yelling, the screaming, the filling of the limited lifeboats that were available? And that night, 1,500 people, just really a few minutes after sleeping, partying and eating, entered eternity. And it was a great tragedy. I bring that story to mind as we begin our message this morning because in our text today, as I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 10, there is a Titanic-type moment. A moment when you think everything is going great and we are in charge and it brings to mind the, um, the slogan or the saying that... Uh, uh, evidently was said about the Titanic that not even God himself could sink this boat. It was a, a moment where the pride of man was on display and it crumbled in moments. We see a moment like that in our text today and we need to lay a little bit of groundwork. So we begin in Genesis chapter 10. If you're new to us, we've been going through the book of Genesis. This is uh, the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. And we've started with creation. We've worked our way through and we'll not take the time this morning to review each chapter. We'll do that in a week or so. 
Um, But uh, this morning we're in chapter 10, and you know that two weeks ago, if you were here, we had that incredible story of Noah uh, following a time of being off the ark a number of years later. The earth is renewing itself. He has planted a vineyard. He's made wine of the fruit of the vine. He gets himself drunk in a careless moment, evidently. Uh, He becomes drunk. We, We can only believe that he knew what he was doing. And uh, one thing led to another, and one drink meant another drink. And the next thing you know, he's made a complete, utter fool out of himself. He's in his tent, undressed, unclothed. And uh, one of his sons, his youngest son, Ham, evidently sees him there. And instead of showing respect and honor to his father, he mocks him. It's a great sin in God's eyes for us to not honor our parents And uh, Ham goes out, makes fun of his father, tries to include his two older brothers, Shem and Japheth. And you know how Shem and Japheth carefully took the blanket or the coat and backed into the tent with the coat over their shoulders, laid it down on their father to cover him, to cover his shame. And when Noah rises from his sleep and his mind clears, he realizes that something has happened. He recognizes, either hears the camp talk or hears his grandson Canaan making continued jokes about it because he then pronounces a curse on Ham through his son Canaan, his grandson, Noah's grandson, Ham's son. And Canaan is cursed. And he's cursed to be the servant of Shem and Japheth. Shem is blessed. We find out in our text in chapter 10 that Japheth is the oldest, but Shem is the second born. He receives the blessing. And Japheth's blessing is to be received by being in the tents of Shem. It's kind of an interesting story. Let's look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 is one of those chapters that if you're reading your Bible, you tend to kind of just glance your eyes over it so that you can, in good conscience, put a check on your list and say, I read chapter 10. But you don't really know what it's all about and you kind of flip through it. You need to understand it in the Hebrew mind and actually later on, and we'll probably revisit this in the, in the future a little bit, it's very important to show that how God has used his, through the line of, of uh, Seth and through Noah and then through Shem, how God is promised a king eventually. And uh, God has a people And God is, uh, this is very important to the Hebrew mind, to know where they came from, to know who their ancestors were. And uh, some of you work on, do genealogical work, and you're curious, what what about my past? And this in the Hebrew mind was very important. And then theologically and biblically, it was very important to see that the promises of God were fulfilled through the line through whom he made those promises. We'll not read chapter 10 in its entirety. And actually, our text is going to be chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, But let's talk about a few things that we see in chapter 10 that lay a groundwork for this incident that happens in chapter 11, okay? The first thing I want to do is let's just take a look. As though we were going to read chapter 10, we would read beginning with chapter 10. Now, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. So here's what chapter 10 is all about. If you look down... um, at your Bible, above the chapter heading where the number 10 is, in my Bible and perhaps yours, it says the table of nations. And so what we have here is a genealogical record. And what these table of nations entail is the sons of Noah. We know that the earth was down to four men and their wives. Out of this small family, 
The world will become repopulated. And notice in verse 2 then, the sons of Japheth. So we have now verses 2 through 5, the sons of Japheth. And he goes on and he lists them and so forth. And then we have, beginning with verse 6, and the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizram, Put, Canaan, and all kinds of names. Some of them are very difficult to pronounce. So you have the sons of Japheth, you have the sons of Ham, and we have then, starting with verse 21, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. There we find out the birth order. We find out back in 9, chapter 24, that Ham was his youngest son. And so we know the order of Noah's sons. Verse 21, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. And then it goes on down the line, and it gives you the idea of the fact that out of these men come the nations of the world. All right? Now, this is an interesting point, and we've emphasized it a little bit in our past message. But we know that when God blessed Shem, he was the one who received the primary blessing. And that, as we stated before, is where the Israelites come from. Those are God's people, the Hebrew children. And out of that, through him, will come Abraham eventually, just another chapter away. Uh, chapter 12, we get into the story of Abraham, and now we're going to have all the story of how God uh, fulfills his promise to Abraham and makes him a great nation. And so even the, the Jewish people today, the Israelites today, are the sons of Shem. Well, we see then in the, uh, the Hamites, the chap- verse 6 through verse 20, this genealogical line, these are the sons of Ham, and these are the ones that were cursed to be the servants. And we find that if you were to look at a map, and we'll probably show you one in the future, the, the sons of Ham were the Canaanites, and they settled in North Africa, Egypt, and the places around there. And they were the Canaanites who were in the land of Canaan. Remember the land flowing with milk and honey that Joshua and Caleb go in with the, the ten spies. And uh, they wanted to go take it over. And ultimately, Joshua is going to destroy many of the Canaanite cities. And they're a cursed people. And they're the enemies of Israel. Brothers against brothers. Well, the sons of Japheth, the Japhites, they end up going north and they become the Europeans, the Gentiles. And so you have the division of nations here and you can track these tribes and anthropologically and you can figure out geographically where they ended up. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? That the sons of Shem, they're the Israelites. The sons of Ham, they're the Canaanites, the North Africans, the Egyptians. And then the Japhites, they're the, uh, the folks to the north. There's a couple other interesting things in this passage because if you're reading through your Bible, you encounter something that's kind of puzzling. When you're reading through all these names, you try to read, well, I've made a commitment to read through my Bible, so I'm going to read chapter 10. And you get to the verse 4 and you're reading these hard names, the sons of Japheth, and he goes through Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Rodanim. And from these, the maritime people spread. So they, they were in ships and by their clans and in their nations. And then you read an interesting sentence. At the end of verse 5, you read that each with his own language. All right? Well, when we read in chapter 11, verse 1, and flip the page and look at chapter 11, verse 1, look what it says. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Well, I thought I would, we just read in 10.5 that these people were spreading out and they all had their own language. What's that all about? Let's keep looking in chapter 10 and find a couple more clues that help lay a groundwork for our story in chapter 11. 
Notice that verse 8, under the Hamites, we encounter a very interesting character that's going to play a role in the story today. Verse 8, Cush was the father of Nimrod. And then it stops with Nimrod and gives some detail about this guy, where it's been listing off all these names. When he hits Nimrod, he gives some detail. And look what it says. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kela, and the Resin, which is between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. So we learn something in chapter 10 about this guy Nimrod. He was so well known that there was a saying about him around the world. And the saying was, Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And I take that not to be the fact that he was a man of God before the Lord and that he thanked the Lord for the kill when he shot his arrows into deer, but that he was like, he was like the Lord of the earth. And Nimrod was a mighty, powerful man. And we see here also that he was a builder of cities. Nimrod evidently had an ability to gather people around him. He had an ability to, he was powerful, he was strong. And many Bible students believe that Nimrod actually was the founder of the early Babylonian cult religions, out of which many other pagan religions launched. He was politically powerful, and he was resourceful, and he controlled the earth of that day. Nimrod the mighty hunter under the name of the Lord. Do you notice one of the cities that it says, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers, verse 10, of his kingdom were, what's the next word? Babylon. Keep that in mind, all right? So we know that Nimrod is the builder of Babylon. We're going to encounter that in just a minute. I want to point out one more little detail out of chapter 10. Stay with me. It's kind of, you see the division of the sons, how they spread out across the earth. We recognize that uh, Nimrod is a mighty builder of cities. He's controlling the earth at that time. There's another clue for us, and this is in... Uh, uh, verse 25, under the Semites, under the sons of Shem, it says, verse 25, two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. That's interesting, isn't it? So I'm reading chapter 10 and I discover at least two details that are interesting to me. One is that people are spreading out and they're talking in different languages. And then I read verse 25 and I find out that during the lifetime of Peleg, who was a descendant of a descendant, he was, okay, it was during his lifetime that the nations divided, that people spread out. So now let's turn the page to our text. We've laid a little historical groundwork. I hope you kind of picked up on what I was talking about. And we read chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's read this now, because this is actually the text for our message today. And then you'll see a little bit how chapter 10 and chapter 11 will fit together. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Follow along in your Bible, please. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. 
And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over all the earth and they stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel, Babel or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's part of the order that you need to understand. When Moses, evidently Moses, recorded the book of beginnings, he's on Noah, he hits Noah's three sons, he comes out of the cursing and the blessing passage, and he takes a minute and he writes out the genealogy in chapter 10. He then goes back to chapter 11, and we actually go backward on the timeline, and he tells us how the people got spread out. And so don't be confused or think that the Bible contradicts itself. Chapter 10 really just kind of gives the details of what happens when chapter 11 happened, and it kind of got flip-flopped. And if you don't get that straight in your mind, you can kind of be confused. Well, wait a minute. Here it says they have many languages and are spread out. Then I read, but it doesn't go in order. Chapter 11 comes before chapter 10, right there. And the, it's a, an expansion of the details. I'm going to pronounce Babel as Babel. It's easier for me to remember it that way. In many of the commentaries, it has the long E slash over Babel. There's two reasons why I'm going to say Babel, and that's because I think that it, it is an onomatopoeia. Do you know what that is? An onomatopoeia? In English, what is Babel? Babel, 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 Babel. It's a word that is made up to represent what it sounds like, right? Oh, they're just full of Babel. It's all babbling in there. I can't get straight what they're saying. It's all Babel. And we wouldn't say it's all Babel in there. It's all Babel. The other thing is, is that where this event takes place in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, guess what? It's Babylon. All right? And it becomes, instead of the gate of the gods, Babylon, this city which throughout Scripture represents a pagan city. Babylon throughout Scripture is always a city that has its fist up in the face of God. It gets destroyed repeatedly through history, and we find that Babylon even occurs in the later chapters of the book of Revelation, where Babylon, that great whore, she tries to take over the world one more time. It is evidently a religious center of Antichrist, even in the last days of the Great Tribulation. And there it is. And right from the beginning, Nimrod, this mighty hunter, this man who ruled the earth, he built Babylon and he called it, and the word kind of means the, the gate of the gods. And he evidently had religious systems and political system was very powerful. And God changes the name to Babel. Babel, Babel, Babel. Confused language. And so it's interesting. Here's Nimrod setting up a city and at the time of Peleg, okay, as the earth is populating. So let's go to chapter 11 now and break it down. We've read the text. Let's break it down into four parts and let's learn some lessons from this interesting and I want to show you how it even has this titanic moment to it. 
The first thing that we see in chapter 11 in our text this morning, in verses 1 and 2, is we see the growth of civilization. We see the growth of civilization. The whole world had one language and a common speech. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? You know, it really makes sense. It's useful to have one language, isn't it? I just think if you could travel the whole world right now and everybody speaks the same, everybody would speak the same language. Right now, I think that the, the leading trade language of the world is English. And uh, airline pilots and so forth, they, they will use that language. So that we have, it's very handy. You know, it makes sense, isn't it, that God spoke to us through His Word. Beginning with his walking and talking with Adam and Eve in the garden, God came down and he communicated with them, didn't he? Ultimately, his ultimate revelation to us was twofold. His revelation to us through Christ, was, and John 1 says that he's the word, right? The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God gave us the word and he speaks this word to the whole world. Second part of that revelation is the word of God that we would understand to be a book that God's prophets and apostles have written down for us the words of God to us. Don't you, see, don't you see that Noah comes off the ark, he has his sons, they speak the same language, they have sons, he teach them the language, that nobody's making up new language, they have sons, everybody's speaking the same language. And through that, then as civilization begins to grow, it's a very convenient thing. They can pass truth to the next generation very easily. Everybody's on the same page. But notice what happens. Point number two of our outline of this text is, with the growth of civilization, number two comes the plan for urbanization. The plan for urbanization. Look what it says. And they said to each other, verse 3, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. So they get to the plain of Shinar. Evidently, the population of the world has really grown, and there's just lots of people. And under the direction of Nimrod, the city builder, he wants to build Babylon for the first time. It's the first time Babylon is being built. And it's this huge community of people. And I don't know that there's anything wrong with building a city. They're still kind of spreading out. But when they got to this plain, though they had spread out from the ark, according to God's instruction, remember God had instructed Adam, go and fill the earth. After he scoured the earth with the flood, what's his first instruction to Noah in chapter 9? Go and fill the earth. It was God's plan for people to spread out and fill the earth. When they get to Shinar, something happens, and they develop this concept of urbanization, but along with it, there's, a, there's something else that happens, and I call it the drive for secularization. Number three, the drive for secularization. Notice what happens. Let's repeat verse five. Uh, excuse me, verse four. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may, may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Oh, now I see what's going on. Under Nimrod the Great, they decide to stick it in God's face. That's what they're doing. They're saying, you know what? I don't need God to tell me what to do. In fact, I'm not even sure who God is. I'm not even sure he's there. What do you mean go and fill the earth? We're going to build a city, and I don't even think it was wrong for them to build a tower. It says there they built this tower to go to the heavens. There's lots of speculation about the towers, that it was some kind of a ziggurat, that, that 
it was a place of worship. Um, I don't think that it exists anymore. And I don't think that it was wrong for them to build a high building. But what was wrong was the attitude behind their goal of building the building. You see that? What's it say? So that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They were building a monument to mankind. This was going to be the greatest city that ever existed. And in that city was going to be this great building that I think is just an expression to the heavens. That thing goes way up into the sky. I don't think that they thought they could get to God. I don't think so. I don't think they were thinking about God at this time. Some Bible students have speculated in in the past that they were building this tall building to prove that God could never send a flood that they couldn't survive. They could just get up in their high tower. And there's no exegetical reason to believe that either. It's just speculative. I think that this is nothing more than a building named the Titanic that is a monument to man that not even God could destroy this city. You see, as they spread out and civilization grows, then they get the idea of urbanization. Along with the uh, idea of urbanization comes this growth of a secular mindset. Humanism creeps in. It's all about man. It's not about God. It's all about us. Look how great we are. And they wanted to have this big city with the centerpiece of being this great tower, this great building, so that when people from all parts of the world would come by, they would look and they would see and they would say, wow, isn't Nimrod something? It's huge. It's great. It's big. It's beautiful. Clearly, man was just disobeying God's instruction. Because it was their full intention, it would appear, based upon God's thoughts at this time, that they no longer needed to spread out and fill the earth. This is all we need. This is who we are. This is our camp. This is our kingdom. And there became this great drive for secularization. I want you to notice in the rest of the story, we have now the Titanic moment, and it's number four, God's view of insubordination or God's response, you might say, to insubordination. God's view of insubordination. Let's pick up verse 4 again. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. All right, let's just stop there for a minute. I think this is kind of interesting. I think it's probably Moses who is recording this For which people group? This is the history of Israel. Okay? The people who are building Babylon, where this great tower is, under Nimrod, the great hunter leader, are they the good guys or the bad guys? They're the bad guys, according to the Israelites, right? And according to Noah's curse on them. And I think you've got a little bit of writer's bias that comes through here. And he's slamming them just a little bit. You get a little bit of a clue of that when he points out, because here it is, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses writes, and they use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. I think it's interesting that this is in present-day Iraq, and there's already these tar pits, these oil reserves are all over in the ground, and the tar evidently bubbles out of the ground. They were able to use it for pitch. But in Palestine, they didn't make bricks. In Palestine, they used stone and mortar. They built real buildings. Excuse me for saying Palestine, Willem. In Israel, Palestine is a word for Philistia, the Philistines. And many people call the Holy Land today, Israel, Palestine. 
But it's not Palestine, it's Israel. It's not the land of the Philistines, it's the land of the Israelites, okay? And, and, and I stand corrected. And, and so the Israelites, they didn't use stone. I mean, they didn't use bricks, they used stone and mortar. And so as he's writing, he points out, they think they're so big and they have to make their building out of mud bricks. It's a little bit maybe of a put down of this great project that they think is so big. And I think that it's the next line is the same thing. But the Lord came down to see the city. Does that mean that God missed this one? Did it catch God by surprise? Oh my word, look what's going on. I better go down there and see what's happening. That's not God. Isaiah says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Isaiah says that the nations are in his hand. Nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're like dust in his hand, in the palm of his hand. Listen, they're nothing to God. He's absolutely sovereign and totally in control. And I think it's Moses writing, they think their building is so big. They think their project was so great. They think they are so awesome. But our God had to stoop down even to see this minuscule project. It's really, too, an an anthropomorphism as well, isn't it? It's a giving to God the qualities of men so that we can kind of understand. In other words, God is now going to pay attention to them for a minute. See, God gives people a long leash, doesn't he? You want to go run from God? You want to go build your projects that are anti-God? You want to go think you're the man? You want to go pound your chest? Go right ahead. You're liable to get away with it for quite a while. God usually lets people go because in his grace... He gives you time to wake up and realize how foolish you're being. And here it says, God came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. It wasn't that he already knew it. It's that he's now paying attention to it and he's going to deal with it. Verse 6, and then the Lord notices something and he says, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Does that mean that that humanity at its finest, working together, unified, that the sky's the limit and that there's nothing we can't do and that we can become as God is now? I don't think it means that at all. I think that it is simply God not being threatened one bit by the activities of wicked men, but it is God who simply knows the tendency of man's wicked heart that if you let him go long enough on his own, he'll think he can do anything and it just gets worse and worse and worse. And he just got done a few years before this scouring off the wickedness of the earth with the flood. And he said, if I don't spread them out and get them going, they're just going to camp there on the plain and they're going to be in their city and they're going to think that they don't need me at all. And then what happens is so great. He says, come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. They couldn't understand each other, so they didn't like each other because they're getting mad at each other. I said I wanted sugar, not salt. Don't do that to me. I want lepsura. In fact, let's do something here. Let's take a minute. We got time. Lucia, come up, come up. Lucia, you can do this. And Tom, come up. And Marika, come up. Okay? Come up here. Come, 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 come. Hurry up. I only get about 45 minutes a week to preach. Okay. 
Okay, this is, this is the tongues movement, yes. Okay, Tom, you're going to speak in uh, Nigerian, whatever you call that. What's your... What? It's English, that's what we mean. Oh, come on, you, you, know, you know something. Hausa. Hausa. Yes. Don't play games with me. All right, here we go. <laughs> Lucia, you speak Portuguese or Spanish? Portuguese. Portuguese from Brazil. Okay, we could get Elizabeth up here, couldn't we? She's holding her baby. And Marika, you speak Dutch. Okay, okay. Now, uh, let's see how we're going to do this. Let's say, let's say you greet on the street, okay? And this is the moment that God is going to change the languages. Can you imagine this? Okay? You're, and you are friends, okay? And you haven't seen each other, okay? And, and you, you are going to speak in English to begin with, okay? And let's pretend that you come together. It's like, hi, how are you? How are your children? Okay, make up a conversation. Go, go. Hi, how are you doing? And it's, they speak English. Good to see everybody. Speak. Okay, and now everybody switch to your language. Switch to your language. Okay, that's kind of the idea anyway. I needed to have the microphone here. I mean, can you imagine that? You're walking down the street. And your friends are there, and you're talking about the day, talking about your kids, talking about the great tower, talking about how great Nimrod is, and what Sir Nimrod is, you know, the taxes that he's raising, and all the spending that he's doing, and how great of a leader he is, and Nimrod the Great. And then all of a sudden, what? I didn't mean anything by that. So then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he switches into this other language. It's totally confusing. There's workmen working way up on the scaffold, and one guy's operating a crane, and he's got all this pile of bricks, and the guy says, bring them down slow, and the guy thinks he said fast, or whatever. I mean, he's got a mess on their hands. Listen to me. You think that God gets upset with the arrogance of man? You think that man can rock God's boat? This is man thinking he is big stuff, big city, big tower, rule the world, do it my way. And all God does is, bam, in a split second, change the languages, and they have to find people that they can understand. And like I said before, if they can't understand each other, they don't like each other. So then they split up, and they carry on, and then the next, let's just get out of here, and then off they go. Out of this division of the language, by the way, is where the races come and the genetic pool in different groups. But isn't that interesting? You know, I think there's some important lessons from a text like this today. The Lord scatters them from the earth. They stop building their city, and that is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Listen, God said, I told you to fill the earth. I want you to fill the earth. It brings to mind moments in Scripture, doesn't it, where people get puffed up. I mean, that was the titanic moment at Babel, wasn't it? Our big tower, our big city. And then just like that, the languages are turned and the whole thing crumbles. And I, I take it the tower probably was never completed. I would take it that for hundreds of years, this mud brick tower began to wash slowly, eroding away in the rain. And for hundreds of years, it was a monument to, to man's foolish arrogance, and people pointed at it and said, oh, there was Nimrod's old tower. Thought he was hot stuff, didn't he? You know, I think about guys like the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12, 
about the rich fool that woke up one morning, felt really good about himself, looked out across his fields. The corn was blowing in the wind, tasseling out. It was a beautiful spring day. His barns and silos and his granaries, his corn cribs were still filled from last year's harvest. He didn't know what he was going to do with this year's harvest. And he starts to think about what a good farmer he is and what a wealthy man he is. And I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to take my crops and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that like he could make the rain come down, like he could make corn grow. And all God has to do is say, Tonight your heart stops beating. You are dust. I think God said, you're dust in the wind. You didn't know I knew that song, did you? (laughs) God didn't sing that song. How about mighty Nebuchadnezzar? On the roof of his castle, his kingdom. Oh, what city was that, by the way? Babylon. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, chapter 4 in there, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up one morning and he'd already been warned in a dream by young Daniel saying, look, God is going to humble you. You need to humble your heart. And he looks over his city and he's puffed up and he thinks he's the man and he thinks he rules the world. And he forgot to remember that it's God who appoints kings. It's God who sets up and takes down kings. It's God who turns the heart of the king like a river course wherever he wants. It's not man that's in control. It is God who's in control. It is God's purposes that are going to prevail. And man cannot thwart God's plan. And Nebuchadnezzar up there on his balcony, pounding his chest as it were. And just like that, he lost his mind. They say your mind is a terrible thing to waste. I think it's even worse to lose it. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Greatest king on earth. And he loses his mind and he takes on a psychologically uh, known uh, illness where he thinks he's an animal. And he pretends to be an animal and he wants to live like an animal. And so he gets down on all fours and even evidently had physiological uh, change in his body somewhat from it. The chem- body chemistry changed in him even. He begins to grow hair as though it were feathers. His fingernails were grown. His facial hair, he slobbers on himself. And I take it that the king's court had to put up a guard to keep the people away from him for months. I can't remember how long it was. I didn't double check. It was a year or so, wasn't it? And they have him out on the king's plantation and they got him back in some pasture. And they look over there. Can you imagine the, the secret service keeping everybody away from him? Because... Paparazzi wanted to be in there to see the king on all fours with mouth full of grass. And he's the big man? Listen, all it takes is just a little scrape of an iceberg and it sinks. The sons of Korah? The sons of Korah offering up unholy fire, disrespecting Moses, their leader, when the children of Israel are in the wilderness? And God says, Moses, just back out of the way I've had it. Opens up the ground, earthquake, they all fall in, shuts the earth. People, you got to realize God is absolutely in control and God has set the agenda and God has written down his word and if God says, go fill the earth, go fill the earth, don't build a city. And this monument to the pride of man becomes an in-your-face object from God himself to them. How do we apply this? Lesson number one from this lesson, from this text I think it screams at us, number one, God hates pride. God hates pride. You remember in Proverbs chapter 6, 
where he says there in Proverbs chapter 6, he has a list of all the things that God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him, he says. And the very first thing he says is, a proud look goes on to a lying tongue. I'll tell you, that is a passage that fits American politicians, isn't it? A proud look and a lying tongue. You better wake up because you're not the God of this world at whatever level they serve. And we live in a country that's filled with corruption right now at all levels. You would think with our gods crumbling, with our Babel falling down around us right now, Wall Street, home values, retirement funds, I mean, what is of more value to Americans than their retirement and their home? And they have fallen on their face in front of God. You would think we'd be on our knees confessing our sin as a nation before the Lord and crying out for his blessing instead of saying, we'll pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Who do we think we are? Listen, God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, you know this one. We all, we all misquote it. We all want to say, pride goeth before a fall. It's not exactly how it says, right? Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You want to fall on your face? Then let your pride run. And this can happen at any level, can it? And do we not live in a culture where pride is adulated and we, we worship prideful people, pride-filled people? Young men and young women who are here, you be very careful who your models are. In our culture of Hollywood and our athletic uh, subculture, what is it all about? It's all about this. What did I do? I just scored a basket. What did I just do? What did I just do? I just got a piece of pigskin across a chalk line. I'm the man. I'm the man. Listen, you're not the man. You're nothing. Anybody can do that. Well, you get paid millions of dollars to do it. So then you wear your hat crooked and you put your clothes on a certain way and you walk a certain way because you think you got it together. I'm telling you, this tragic boating wreck of those NFL players, the drowning of those guys down in Florida and the, the biggest, strongest, richest, most powerful men. Listen, all it takes is a little flip of a boat. Listen, you got to be careful how you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and think who you are. Because God hates pride. He only gives you so many days. Secondly, out of this, and closely related, is that, number, number two, God refuses to share his glory. God refuses to share his glory. That's why the first commandment is, you'll have no other gods before me. You don't worship anything but me. For one thing, he knows the tendency of our heart is always to draw away from him, isn't it? Do you fight that every day? To always think of ourselves in distorted means? To always think that we're bigger and better than we are? To always want to worship the creation rather than the creator? God says, no. It's about me and my glory. I created you to worship me for my glory, for the praise of his glory. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11b says, God says, I will not yield my glory to another. I won't do it. And so there's a lot of people strutting around. 
and they think it's all about them, and it's not. Second, thirdly, first, God hates pride. Secondly, God refuses to share his glory, even with Nimrod. Thirdly, listen, the willful, stubborn, arrogant disobedience of man cannot short-circuit the plan of God. The willful, stubborn, arrogant disobedience of man cannot short-circuit the plan of God. Listen, if God said spread out and fill the earth, eventually you spread out and fill the earth. Okay? Is this his way or the highway? He only lets you mess around for so long. His grace is always in a parenthesis. It only lasts so long. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4 says, The Lord works out everything to his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster. That's a powerful verse. You know that? You can shake your fist at God. You can think you're going your own way. You can do whatever you want. God will always turn it and use it for his glory somehow, even the wicked for the day of disaster. We know, Paul said in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Why not start now? Fourthly, turn to Isaiah with me, 66.2, verse B, and with this we're done. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2B. Isaiah 66, verse 2, the second half of the verse. But let's read into it right from the beginning of the chapter. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will, be my resting place? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. I'd like you to take out your pen, and if you are not afraid to write in your Bible, to underline the second half of verse 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. The fourth application that we get from the Genesis 11 passage, the story of Babylon and Babel, Babel, Not only does God hate pride, not only does God refuse to share his glory, not only can the willful, stubborn, arrogant disobedience of man cannot short-circuit the plan of God, but number four and finally, Isaiah 66, 2b, God uses and blesses the humble of heart. God uses and blesses the humble of heart. Listen. It's an easy trap to fall into. You might be just a young high school athlete because you're getting a little bit of attention for putting a round ball through an iron ring. You really think you're something. You're not something. Everything you have and everything you are, God gave you. And you better worship him with it. Just because you can throw a baseball through a little rectangular box across the white rubber plate faster than everybody else. The only reason you have that arm it's because God lets it stay hooked to your shoulder. And in a split second, it can have cancer. It can have tendonitis. It's nothing. You can get warts on your fingers, and then you can't hold the baseball right. You're nothing. 
You better give glory to God for how you can throw that baseball. You might be some hot rod 45-year-old guy and you think your hot snot got to buy yourself a convertible and you're looking good and wearing chains around your neck. You better wake up. You're not the king of the earth. I don't know what got into you, but you better humble yourself before Almighty God. Love your wife, love your children, and take care of them and be in Sunday school with your Bible open on your lap. You're not hot snot. And I don't have anybody in mind, but that's just our culture, isn't it? Well, I sort of had Jeff Adele's in mind, but he's the guy with the Corvette, you know. That's our culture. Is this not our culture? Is this not our culture that we build these buildings to ourselves? That we worship what's in the mirror? God says, get over it. Obey me. And all he had to do, confuse the language. Isn't that something? What a mighty God we serve. The mighty God we serve. What a privilege to know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege to let Jesus Christ rule in me. That I might decrease and he might increase. It's a lesson for the elders of this church. We're not hot snot. Forgive my little phrase here. That we would just be humble, right? And just be what God wants us to be. Be a bunch of little kids running around their house saying what the pastor said today and then get them in trouble. Pastor says it. Let's bow our heads. Well, it's an old story in a history book here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reminding us of how man can get out of control with his pride. And I don't know how the Lord needs to apply this to your life. Our culture certainly works against us on this one, thinking we have to look and be a certain way. This is the one I esteem, says the Lord, he who is humble and contrite of heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. So, Father, would you just help us to be a church filled with humble, godly, Christ-centered worshiping saints. Forgive us for how easily we're lured into the things of this world. Help us to have a sensitivity to the voice of your Holy Spirit convicting us on a a daily basis that we listen to how we talk, that we watch how we walk, we're careful how we act, and that it be all about Jesus and not about us. Father, as we live in this world, we recognize that people need Jesus, and they're so proud they don't think they need Jesus. So help us to be your emissaries, your ambassadors to a very needy world. Lord, break our hearts. Help us to just be on our knees before you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.